This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. Winston Churchill once said that dictators ride to and fro upon tigers from which they dare not dismount, and the tigers are getting hungry. In the wake of what happened in Washington last week, I think this metaphor illustrates something deeper about the relationship between demagogues and their followers. Who are the tigers and why are they hungry? Riots, the voice of the unheard, clearly signify some issues within a society that, if not resolved, inevitably lead to the baring of teeth. Tigers only emerge from tears in the social fabric. The more the economic, social or cultural chasm rips open, the more untamed emotions spill out of the void and the more likely it becomes that a demagogue can saddle up and offer a solution. Steve Bannon said that we got elected on drain the swamp, lock her up, build a wall. This was pure anger. Anger and fear is what gets people to the polls. Many ancient philosophers were skeptical of democracy because it was vulnerable to the threat of demagogues. Plato argued in the Republic that because democracy must allow freedom of speech, it was defenceless against strongmen who could make promises to the demos based on their fears, their emotions. Joseph Goebbels said that this will always remain one of the best jokes of democracy, that it gave its enemies the means by which it was destroyed. So why is it that democracy is vulnerable to demagogues? What do demagogues offer and how might we protect against it? Demagogues spark kindling. They appeal to the raw emotions of a primed group, stirring up feelings and offering appealing, simple solutions to what are always complicated problems. They take the hunger of the tiger and offer it rancid meat, claiming to be able to solve a problem with something simple. A lie, a wall, a conspiracy theory, a return to making something great again. Demagogues offer anything that sounds appetizing to the ears of those that haven't the time or often, frankly, the education to think deeply about the problems we face. That's why fascists offer fantasies and conspiracies. They have the appearance of being the quickest route to a solution. Hitler thrived in the chaos of the Weimar Republic, offering an appealing solution to stalemate in the Reichstag, the German parliament. This logic of emotion latching on to simplicity always relies on a handful of tactics. Fascists, for example, appealed to a simpler mythical and idealized past. Similarly, Authoritarians are almost always anti-intellectualists who prefer action and doing over thinking and negotiation. The French fascist Pierre Roux La Rochelle wrote that a fascist is a type of man who rejects culture, 
It's a man who does not believe in ideas and hence rejects doctrines. It's a man who only believes in acts and carries out these acts in line with a nebulous myth. Conspiracy theories, for example, offer easy explanations to difficult and uncomfortable truths. They tell some in-group that they're being manipulated by some out-group, whether that's the Jews, birtherism, the Great Replacement Theory, Pizzagate, or the stealing of an election. Easy explanations for emotional and hungry tigers that give the appearance of the world making sense. Hannah Arendt wrote in her magisterial The Origins of Totalitarianism that what convinces masses are not facts, not even invented facts, but only the consistency the system of which they are presumably a part and repetition of them is only important because it convinces them of consistency in time. But there's a fundamental question here. If it's that simple, why can't demagogues operate all of the time? What is it that usually protects against them? Conspiracy theorists and demagogues like Hitler almost always come from the fringes from outside of established social groups and organisations which, because of the widespread checks and balances within them, protect against information that's antithetical to the core beliefs of that group. Stable and cohesive groups and institutions simply won't adopt simplistic short-term solutions because a large enough proportion of the membership will reject them in favour of more effective long-term responses. An institution or social group has many members contributing to its economy of information. It has long-term goals, has an incentive to keeping short-term solutions out, has a loose but cohesive identity that its members, whether they agree with the minutiae or not, usually align themselves to. Typically, institutions, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the Washington Post, the university, Google, whatever it might be, have a dynamic that balances the desires, goals, and attitudes of a hegemonic proportion of its members. In the biology of the body, this is called homeostasis, the tendency towards equilibrium. It takes something from the outside, a virus, for example, to disrupt this. Now, I think the internet has fundamentally destabilized this logic of stability in social groupings and institutions. Trump created a coalition of Trumpists, not through the GOP, but from the outside, through his public profile and his ability to talk directly to his supporters. The Republican Party did, at first, try to keep him out. The Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Walter Lippmann discussed this in his 1922 book, Public Opinion. Nowhere, he wrote, when you look, does the machine disappear. Nowhere is the idyllic theory of democracy realised. Certainly not in trade unions, nor in socialist parties, nor in communist governments. There is 
an inner circle surrounded by concentric circles, which fade out gradually into the disinterested or uninterested rank and file. Lippmann said that the better the institutions, the more all interests concerned are formally represented, the more issues are disentangled, the more objective criteria are introduced, the more perfectly an affair can be presented as news. The internet has fractured us into a deluge of interlocking and competing movements, identities and social groups competing for both digital and physical space. This is the threat of the online world, that it leaves us more open to demagogues who can bypass the gatekeepers of traditional institutions. The Republican principle, wrote Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, does not require an unqualified complacence to every sudden breeze of passion or to every transient impulse which the people may receive from the arts of men who flatter their prejudices to betray their interests. On the contrary, he said, when the interests of the people are at variance with their inclinations, it's the duty of the persons whom they have appointed to be the guardians of those interests, to withstand the temporary delusion conduct of this kind has saved the people from very fatal consequences of their own mistakes. I think, to be frank, the Republican Party has clearly failed here. But if a coalition of interests cannot offer a dominant and convincing solution to the problems of the status quo, then the public sphere will fracture into an ungovernable block of competing interests. In this climate, like in Weimar Germany, demagogues will emerge on tigers. Now, an institution, a social group, or a coalition of interests does not necessarily have to be a political party. It can also simply be a consistent set of ideas, a movement, or a consensus. However, if progressives don't organise in some way around a cohesive set of beliefs that can appeal to the majority of voters, then the Tigers will continue to be drawn to demagogues, short-term solutions and conspiracy. We're at the beginning of a tumultuous moment in history. Power is shifting away from America, while the internet is continuing to upend the way we do everything. The historian Greg Grandin wrote in 2016 that Trump is a response to the decline of the American empire. When Obama was elected in 2008, Grandin wrote that the safety valve of empire closed, gummed up by the catastrophic war in Iraq, combined with the 2008 financial crisis. Because Obama came to power in the ruins of neoliberalism and neoconservatism, Empire was no longer able to dilute the passions, satisfy the interests, and unify the divisions. Reactionary conservatism and fascistic authoritarianism at the extreme are always response to moments like this, periods that are fertile soil for demagogic solutions. And I don't think what's coming in the post-Trump era will be much prettier 
than what we've seen so far. In short, if you think there's a problem, the collapse of the neoliberal and the neoconservative consensus on either side of the fence, increasing inequality, continuing poverty in much of the world, and alienation in the Western world, depression, etc., then you should believe in building a coalition that can offer a solution. In an article for The Atlantic, the sociologist Zainab Tufeki points to a difference between Trump and his fellow right-wing populists around the world. Erdogan, Bolsonaro, Orban, they're all better politicians than him. Trump is good at many things, being a TV star, appealing rhetoric, rallying, social media, but being a disciplined and hard-working politician is not one of them. He doesn't even seem to want the job. In contrast, leaders like Erdogan in Turkey and Orban in Hungary win election after election. They're determined and effective politicians. Now, fast forward to 2024. What do the Republicans do? The stage is set for a more talented Trumpism. Someone without the lazy flaws, the thin skin, the outbursts, the firing of person after person, an authoritarian that actually knows what they're doing in office. But frankly, I think America is on course for a bleak few decades. A malignant type of liberty, stripped of all nuance, is so entrenched in American political life, through the Constitution, through corporate culture and special interests, lobbying in Washington, that it's almost impossible to imagine American politics not descending into some type of increasing authoritarianism to preserve this liberty of the individual at some point. The only possible solution to this is for the left to form a hegemonic bloc dominant and cohesive enough to counter it. What that might be is too early to tell. But organising around a basic and coherent set of principles is fundamental to doing this and fundamental to keeping demagogues out. Infighting and moral rigidity are not. If a coherent manifesto of change isn't put forward by progressives, then the tigers will only become hungrier. Hey everyone, I feel very lucky to be able to say that I'm finally at the point where I can commit full time to making these videos. Um, it's a great honour to be able to do that. I absolutely love doing it. I'm going to make two or three videos a month and continue to improve the quality and the research and do a few more experiments and chats and rambles in between. But it is a time consuming job. It's a full time job and it is just me. So unfortunately, right now, Patreon is still the only way that then and now survives. So if you get any value from these videos whatsoever, then please consider pledging a dollar or two dollars on Patreon. If you pledge five dollars or ten dollars or more even, I will add your name to the credits. I will put scripts and the audio and at some point the videos out early for Patreons only. So if there's anything you'd like to see there, then please let me know. But if you can't afford that right now, then of course it's enough to just press like, subscribe, share, and remember to click that bell to be notified to new videos.
videos. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you next time.